Can we just uh, give a round of applause or show our appreciation with clapping to the band? And David and leading us. It's just really, really wonderful. So part of, part of what you'll notice in camp is that there's a, there's a reality of pressing in in worship that is a part of the story of this camp. And the reason why so many of you actually feel like you go in and out of worship is because you don't know the fruit or the result of worship and pressing in actually produces any results in your life. I want to encourage you that the story of this camp and the testimony of many people in this room is that you, as you press in, as you listen to the word spoken, as you declare with your mouth, as Brandon was encouraging us tonight, that the, you it get moved into a different place, that there is a connection with the fruit of our mouths and with the destiny of our lives. And therefore, it matters, it matters, it matters, because the one challenge that many of you were thinking is when Brandon was saying that, you're going, I don't have to do it. Jesus will love me anyways. That may be true, but you'll miss out on the blessing just by that attitude. You'll miss out. You'll miss out on that reality. And so this kind of, this kind of stuff, this story, this narrative, the, the world that I grew up in was a church world again. In fact, I was the product of a prophetic word given at a major conference in the area of my family because my mom couldn't actually have children, so my name was Samuel because she was too afraid to have a child and she kept losing them over and over, miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage, and then all of a sudden she was in a worship conference kind of thing and somebody called her out and said, you will no longer have the fear over the call on your son's life. You are now going to be pregnant. And bam, apparently I was pregnant. I don't know if after that event, because my parents, never mind, believed in the word of God, uh, or went, if I was already in the womb at that time. But either way, I was that kind of a world. So literally, I was also born on the altar. Uh, <laughs> I didn't actually have a pastor spank me, however. That was just a little weird and creepy thinking about it. But anyways, uh, pastors usually don't do that to people. But anyways, uh, but the idea is this, that, that I grew up in a church setting, church world. It was just in that kind of a place. I was given, um, I grew up Bible study, Bible reading. In fact, the rules of the house was I was allowed to stay up as late as I want as long as I was reading the Bible. If there was ever a hint of a comic, ever a hint of a sports kind of illustrated, kind of little, never mind, I never read Sports Illustrated as a kid. Sports Illustrated for kids, hashtag, uh, th those ones. If there was ever a hint of that, if my mom walked into the room and I was found reading something other than the Bible past my curfew slash bedtime, everything was taken away. So very early on, as a typical Christian little kid, I decided to get a bigger, larger Bible that my magazines could fit in between. So that as my mom walked in, I would just kind of go, Jesus, I love, no. <laughs> but really realizing very quickly that I was also that kind of a kid uh, that, uh, that absolutely just loved the Bible. My most favorite thing was Bible memory. I grew up at a Christian school, uh, and so Bible memory, Bible study, all those kind of things, I just loved it. And I was that stupid little geeky kid that would always, if, if anyone ever asked an answer, a question about the Bible, I'd be like, ooh, I know. Or I'd be that cynical little kid as somebody went to try and go, ah, wrong. That guy. 
But my world also formed in me something a little bit strange when it came to the person of Jesus Christ. And it came to the person of Jesus Christ because I don't know if you've read the action Bible, the comic book kind of Bible, or you've heard the stories that are in the Bible. And by God's grace, in my yearly Bible reading plan, read the Bible through every single year, and this year we're going through a, uh, um, we're going through the Old Testament, trying to find Jesus in the Old Testament. And by God's grace, this morning's reading was one of my most favorite awkward stories in the Bible. Let me just tell you, but this is the world that I absolutely loved, is that there was this guy named Ehud, okay, or Ehud, call it what you want. His name was Ehud, or Ehud, and Ehud, we'll call him Ehud today, Ehud actually uh, had this prophetic kind of word that he was going to deliver, be a deliverer of the people of Israel from this oppressive king. And this oppressive, this oppressive king, his name was Elong. And this guy was the fattest dude on the planet. Let me tell you why we know he was the fattest dude on the planet. And why we know the Bible is both historically accurate because there are all sorts of random, unfortunate details that we, the readers, get the privilege or the pain of taking part in reading, going, seriously, was that necessary? Let me tell you. So Ehud was a left-handed man, and so he took a, he fashioned a left-handed kind of sword that he put onto his leg, and he went into this Elong king's kind of palace area and said he had a message for him. And so they kind of, they, they, he kicked out the people, the guards, the areas, but apparently where he was was in his kind of bedroom-ish area uh, where the king would do all of his business, including bathroom business. So back in the day, they didn't really have toilets or things like that. They had holes in the ground or buckets. And so you would just deal buckets and then the servant's job was to take out the buckets at the time. So Ehud went to, uh, in, into the king's place and, uh, and he went and encountered Elong. And when he saw Elong, he, uh, instead of really giving him the message, he kind of started walking up to him. And uh, I'll get Isaac to come stand up here with me for a second. So this is Elong, much better looking guy than, and I'll be Ehud. Okay, and, uh, and so he reached for his sword with his left hand because most people in that day were right hand. Okay, just, it's just the way it was. And so he, the king was not expecting some weird, happy, weird, gross surprise to come from this guy. And he reached in, grabbed a sword, and stabbed the king. Now here's the unfortunate detail the Bible records. This sword was about a foot long, and the sword got sucked into his fatness. In fact, the Bible records that it enclosed and enfolded over its fatness and sucked in even the hilt, the handle, into the king's stomach. Seriously gross. Anyways, but I love that story. Because that is so crazy. I was like, what a warrior. And so the guy just runs out, goes through the back door or out the window, wherever he goes, and takes off. And all the king's servants are waiting for the king to come out. They're waiting for Elong to come out of the, the, the place. And the Bible says to the point of awkwardness because they thought he was taking a rather large dump. 
because things began to smell as he was dying, and they're like, we'll just leave him alone. Obviously, he ate too many chicken wings last night. This is not a good time to interrupt the king. And then they're like, you know what? This has been probably, I don't know what, I don't know what the point of awkwardness is. In my house, I have four little girls, and so anytime you're in the bathroom for longer than two minutes, it's awkward because somebody has to go always when you want to go. Like, this doesn't work out so well at all. But anyways, we, uh, so the idea was that they waited to the point of awkwardness, and then they burst in and found out that this king was gone and dead. And in fact, he wasn't doing something that they thought. He was actually killed, and they missed it. That's a story in the Bible. Tough warrior dudes. My other favorite story in the Bible is about one of David's young warriors, King David in the Bible. How many people are familiar with King David in the Bible? Any Bible-y type people here? Okay, there's a guy named Benaiah in the Bible, and Benaiah was a dude of dudes, and here's one of the things this dude of dudes decided to do. I don't understand it, but I love it. And I remember reading it over and over and over again, wishing I could be that kind of a guy. And um, back, in, back in the time in Cowichan when there was a cougar scare, I also fantasized about this story at the time. Anyways, let me explain. So there was a, uh, th- this guy named Benaiah was apparently walking along the road on a snowy day. Okay, nice historical detail. Not a sunny day. He wasn't skipping along. It wasn't a rainy day. It was a snowy day. And he noticed a lion in a pit. And a lion was a young lion in the pit. And this is what this dude decided to do. I don't know what it looked like, but I'll tell you. He jumped into the pit and killed the lion. Seriously, who does that? Who's walking along, seeing something like a lion in a pit and going, me and you, buddy, right now. And then they record that is why he's mighty. I'd go, you're stupid and nuts. Except there is some fantasies that when you're in the woods all by yourself, you start imagining, would I be like that guy? Or would I run like a little crazy, scared little boy? I don't know. <laughs> but I have my fantasies. I grew up on those kind of stories and loved all the action scenes because you have Joshua who like dominates and you have these beastly guys. You have Moses kills somebody with his bare hands. He's all super tough and God still calls him anyways. And there's just these crazy things which sounds like we have a violent kind of version of Christianity. And, and it's the, the craziest thing from the outside. But when you're in it, you're just like, this is awesome because God uses these tough, awesome people. It's everything that I wanted to be, and I loved it. And then you move to the New Testament, and you meet Jesus. And all Jesus did when I was growing up looked like he was floating around as some uber-epic, awesome hipster in a dress <laughs> with open-toed sandals and a really nice crafted beard. Probably used really nice beard oil. And he kind of floated around, walking, healing people, feeling a little bit like, well, I'll just take care of this situation. And I was like, man, he doesn't do anything legend. Like, I'd be looking for something. What's he doing? He's going around here. Somebody walks in. Some crazy demon-possessed beast of a man comes to him, and this guy could break chains. That's also a Marvel comic fantasy of mine, to be able to break something like a chain. The idea, never mind. The idea is this, that Jesus, Jesus saw this guy running, and so I remember reading this story as a young, young man, reading this story going, awesome, this guy's name is Legion because he's legend, and he's like a Marvel character, he's going to go after Jesus here, and Jesus is going to have to lay the smack down. 
And seriously, the way the story goes is that this guy runs towards Jesus and all crazy and scared. And everybody is so scared, spitless of this guy. They run towards Jesus and then he stops. And Jesus casts out the demon with a word. And then the guy gets sat down, clothed, and is sitting in his right mind. I was like, he didn't punch him in the face. He didn't, like, there was nothing crazy in that moment. And so I have a little video clip for you uh, just to kind of connect with how the world kind of sees Jesus and unfortunately how young Christians can see Jesus at times if you're not very careful. Are we ready? So anyways, there we go. This is kind of this is kind of the image, unfortunately, that we have of Jesus, and we can have of who like who he is because we're reading it, we're reading the story wrongly. We need something to shock our imaginations, shock our understanding as to who Jesus is. So we read stories like the prodigal son last night, and we read this idea of Jesus, and we just really think that Jesus is walking around just teaching people some stuff, and it's only about just loving your enemies and making sure that you're good and making sure you're not slow dancing too close with that girl and making sure that you don't say his name in vain after you stub your toe and all of these kind of things. And we think that Jesus is walking around looking at all the wrong things that we've done. I used to think that all the time. I used to think that he was just looking for it's like, oh, there it is again. This is what he did. And every time I'd come near him, he'd start with the things that I have done wrong, which is why the explosion of the prodigal and the story of the two sons and the love of a passionate father kind of moves into our life in a way that is mind-bending if we allow it to do so. We can stop it because we can go, hey, I don't really know if that really matters. But Jesus was a real historical person. And this morning, by God's grace, got to see the magic and the power of the resurrection. Just how beautiful and mind-bending that thing really was and how it's an established historical fact. Therefore, we all have to deal with Jesus. One of the challenges I give every university student that's going to a public university uh, is to find one of the professors, especially the history professor, and ask them if Jesus really existed. Because, because we'd always say that, just like, go find somebody that doesn't agree that Jesus existed. It's only everybody agrees that Jesus was alive and did stuff in real time. Our whole calendar turned on his life. We can't get away from it. But as Josh said it so well this morning, we all get to choose what we're going to do with who Jesus says that he is. Who Jesus says that he is. And he is not that guy. Not even close. I mean, like, I, I won't go into it too much right now, but just on one level, for Jesus to endure the suffering of the cross, Jesus was probably pretty jacked. He was, he was very, he would walk all the time. He was very, uh, he worked very hard for 30 years. He worked as a carpenter. This was nobody that was a, a kind of somebody that wasn't, never mind. I won't make any comments about it. Nowadays I might get in trouble. Here we go. So what I want to do this tonight is I want, I want you to see who Jesus is after the resurrection. Okay, so we have, a, we have an understanding of that Jesus before the cross 
his death and resurrection. And I want you to see Jesus the way he is now. Because the greatest need of our generation is to live and serve apocalyptically. And what I mean by that, okay, what I mean by that, that word is a hijacked word, and some of you might not might think it's just too big of a word to use, but what it means is a revealing, an unveiling, the lifting of a, off of a cover, maybe the opening of a present, or the opening of a curtain, the revealing of what is behind and what has been hidden is now coming forward. Now coming forward, and Jesus is calling us to live in that, in light of the revealed mystery of who he is. And therefore, we live and serve apocalyptically, meaning we live and serve by seeing, in listening. And what I mean by that is you begin to see Jesus differently as you hear the words of his revelation of who he is and how he speaks. Because the book of Revelation, which we are going to, by God's grace, go through uh, the first three chapters in the next several days, the book of Revelation is not some scary end times, weird prophecy of here's exactly what's going to happen, and we had the twin towers in there, and I grew up with a youth pastor that used to say, well, the locust and the images that are in Revelation are Apache helicopters, just big helicopters, lots of crazy things, and the Twin Towers are in there, and all these crazy prophecies are in there, and it's, that's not primarily what it is. It's a revelation of who Jesus Christ is, and it uses images and pictures to shock our imaginations into seeing that things are not exactly as it seems to us, that there's more going on around us than we can understand with our own eyes, that there's stuff happening. There's stuff happening. Have you ever walked into a place, you've walked into a shopping mall, you've walked in somewhere, and all of a sudden you instantly feel massively insecure and rejected and lonely? I don't need anyone to raise their hand. You ever walked into a place and all of a sudden felt this surge of excitement, like maybe you went to a sports game or a concert, maybe you got to see Taylor Swift or Justin Bieber at some point in your life? I know there's other people, but I like those ones. Or I did. It kind of got a little... Anyways. But you ever all of a sudden walk into a place and a surge of excitement just overtakes you and you move from like, I'm kind of excited, I'm kind of excited, to like, ah, here I come! You ever move in that kind of a place? There's more going on. There's more going on than what meets our eyes, what we can understand at that moment. There's more going on. And so the whole book of Revelation is to reveal what is actually going on to real life people in real time that are trying to live and serve Jesus, but it's very difficult because they can't see him. And it is a difficult thing because you can't see him. And Peter writes to the church and says, he says, though you don't see him, you love him. That the affection is in our heart and love is towards him even though we don't see him. But Peter and John, John wrote the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. He had to, like us, train his heart 
to see Jesus by listening to him. And in listening to him, they were able to see him as he really is. And they were able to see that their present moment, the stuff that they're dealing with and going through in their everyday, that there's more going on. And Jesus is not as distant as he feels. In fact, you're going to see in these moments that he is standing in the center of their stuff and their world, and yet they feel like he's very distant. He's very distant. And so this is a, this is a world and a time of incredible persecution and incredible pain. And so this is what you need to know about the book of Revelation is that John was known as the beloved disciple. The gospels record a couple really funny things about John. Number one, he always beats Peter in a race. Okay, that's in the gospels. He beats Peter every time in a race. Peter is a slowpoke, apparently, and John is legend. John is also known as the son of thunder. And John is also known as the beloved disciple. He's the guy that was closest to Jesus, or so he says. But John, all of a sudden after this time, John was an awesome guy. There's so much stuff about him that's crazy. They tried to kill him so many times. The Roman government tried to kill him so many times. They're like, let's just take out this guy. Let's try to kill him. And so you know one of their ideas of how they're going to try to kill him? was they're going to boil him in oil. And so they had boiling, boiling oil. Anybody burn, been burned with water? Any McDonald's workers that have been burned with oil? Can everybody say that's super pain? Is that super pain? Oh, man. That looks like it's super pain. <laughs> I've never been burned with oil. But do you know what happened with John as he got thrown in there? He kind of had a hot tub party. <laughs> they threw him in burning oil, and the guys who got burned as they threw him in there because of the splash, so they had McDonald-esque burns on their body as a result, and John's just sitting in there going, hot tub with Jesus, baby. <laughs> nice oil bath, or for his beard. But do you see, this? they tried to kill him, they couldn't do it, and so this is what they decided to do with John. They decided to throw him on the Isle of Patmos. And this was an, an island where the, Rome got rid of everybody they didn't want in their sight. And they're like, let's just put you over there and you can work in something like a rock quarry. So they just like play with rocks all day. Anyways, uh, and so John was there and he was basically, uh, scholars will say, left to bleach and die on the rocks because it was incredibly hot, not a lot of shade, and it was for prisoners and guys that they wanted to get out. And it was in the year AD 96. This is 96 years, okay? This is 96 years. In the first 96 years of church history, John is on the island of Patmos. And he's in this place, and he's in a very frustrating place. He's in a frustrating place of pain, suffering, and probably confusion. You can almost hear John saying, to Jesus in his daily prayer time as he's away from all the churches and all the Christians and all the people that he loves saying, so this is what happens to disciples that you love? They get put on the island of Patmos. They get to be in a place of pain and suffering. And the Bible records the reality of all that John is doing. And John at this time was a pastor. 
John at this time was a, uh, um, a, a very much a passionate pastor. And he was, the, he was the kind of a guy that would be always preaching, always teaching, always living, always serving. And he was actually in charge of seven different churches. The first seven churches of Revelation in there. And you can imagine he would be longing for these churches, longing to be there, not wanting to miss church. And he is stuck on this island. And it's in that place, as he's worshiping Jesus on the Lord's day, that God reveals himself. That Jesus reveals himself and opens John's eyes to the resurrected, the risen, ascended Lord of the universe. He opens his eyes. And as you'll see in a moment, John turns to see a voice. Kind of crazy imagery, right? John turns to see a voice. How do you see a voice? The call in it, very good. The call in it is the same call that we are called to do. We turn to see the voice of Jesus Christ. And in hearing the voice of Jesus Christ, we will see him as he really is and it will arrest our hearts. It'll overwhelm our minds and it'll understand how amazing this Jesus really is. And so we're gonna do two things tonight. The first thing is if you have your notepad and pen or your phone that you're gonna write on, what I wanna do is I want to get I want to read the first chapter of Revelation to you. And I want you to discipline your heart to do something. Don't look at the people next to you. If you need to close your eyes, close your eyes. But we're gonna have the words up on the screen. And we're just gonna read the words of Jesus written to John. And I want you to hear them. And I want you to ask two questions. What is Jesus saying to you now? And what's a question about what you have just heard? Firstly, what's Jesus saying to you? Do you hear his voice at all in this? And what's unique? Secondly, what's unique? What don't you understand? Then I'm going to unpack it a little bit, and then we're going to read it again. And in reading it, we're going to move into a response. And in doing so, you're going to participate in the work of training your heart to see as all the other disciples in Christian history have had to do. Do you know you're not the only one that feels like you're alone? Every Christian in history has those feelings. You're not the one that wonders, you're not the only one that wonders, does it really matter? And so I want the word of God to resonate because every time the word of God is read, it's living and it's active and it does everything that Jesus sets out to do. Scripture says it actually divides. It cuts in. And so I believed in particular that that's what we're supposed to do tonight. And so you can follow along in your Bibles and then you can just write that. No, I'm going to give a little bit of pause after we read it. And then we're going to explain it. So I'm going to invite my lovely wife to come and read. So let me, let me just pray before. And then we're going, to, we're going to do this. The one thing I need you to hear before this, okay, is in our Christianity, we've lost the ability to imagine things. 
And you know what's neat about our generation or maybe your generation, maybe I'm a little bit older, is I believe that you have imaginations that are ready to be unlocked. And these images, do not be afraid of them, do not pull away from them, enter into them. Imagine, if you can get lost in these words, imaginatively, and you can begin to see by hearing, you're participating in the purpose of revelation. To shock us into a way of seeing that things are not as they seem. And in particular, the two purposes of revelation is to set the present moment that we all live in in light of the unseen realities of the future, of what is to come. It's to cause us to long for, to look for Jesus coming again in glory. And secondly, it's to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the present. The very things that we're in right now to find out it might not be as simple as we once thought. And it's to take familiar images and cause them to expand in our minds so that we can see by hearing. And so, Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would begin to reveal and unlock our imaginations. And that we would be stirred towards love in, for you and in you, in Jesus' name. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. 
From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what do you see right now? And what could Jesus be saying to you as a result of what you're seeing in your mind's eye? or your imagination? And secondly, what jumps out? All right. So now you paid attention to that. If you can, write it down. And we're going to move into context. I'm going to try to explain a few different things about this so that you can begin to see Jesus as he has revealed himself. But one of the primary things that you need to see is the creator of the universe, the one who holds it all in his hands, is standing in the middle of his churches. So this is the God who is very close at hand. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus reveals that by saying it's better translated, not just our Father in heaven, but our Father very close at hand. For in that thought, in that mind frame, is the heavens is all around us. And Jesus is very close at hand. So Jesus begins and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. This is who he is, and he has revealed himself in this way. And so the Alpha and the Omega, that's in the Greek alphabet, and it actually means like A to Z. But more than that, the beginning and the end has to do with, first of all, the word arche is the beginning, and it means, it's from the word archetype, which means the way that we were designed to look, if you will. The archetype of all creation. The one in whom has formed all things and whom we need to see very clearly. And the end actually means the inherent destiny of all things. So the end, the end result of an acorn is to become an oak tree. The end of us is to come face to face with Jesus. Everybody gets to see Jesus. And that's why it matters so much what you do with him in this life. That's what matters. It matters because we all get to see Jesus. And those that were against him get a, are in for a huge shock. And those that have longed for him and love him will have their souls satisfied than better than any pleasure you could ever imagine on this earth. Any pleasure that you have touched on this earth, it's not even going to come close to meeting Jesus face to face. That in his presence, there is fullness of joy. And the Bible records there's pleasures at his right hand forevermore. He is our destiny. He is our life. And he's the one that stands in the midst of the situations that we all find ourselves in. 
And John needed to see that because he thought he was on the island of Patmos far away from the churches and go and he sees Jesus, the one that he loves, the one that he spent time with. He sees him standing in the middle of his churches. In the middle. Not distant from it. The risen, ascended Lord of the universe is in the middle of his churches. And so John begins to describe what he sees. And he begins to describe what he sees. First of all, he begins to describe Jesus by not just what Jesus wears, but what he does first. Before we see what he looks like, we see what he does first. And the robes that Jesus is described wearing are high priestly robes. And so Jesus is being declared as a priest. Interestingly enough, do you know what that word priest actually is a pontifex and it means bridge builder. Nice and easy. How many people love Cowichan's Bridge? Pales in comparison to the bridge I grew up with, but it's a nice one. Jesus is a bridge. Do you hear this? This is actually the word. He goes, I am the bridge. I am the bridge. And what a bridge is, is a mediator. It brings you from one side to the other, and it becomes that go-between. And so Jesus is the one that brings us to God, brings us and brings God to us. And Jesus is very familiar with his divinity and very familiar with his humanity. And redemption of humanity, understanding that Jesus knows exactly what it means to be human, fully human, is one of the most glorious pictures of the gospel because he didn't say, just think about me differently. He said, no, I'm gonna show you how to live differently, that I designed this life to look a certain way and I know what you're going through. I know the stuff that you live in. And he redeemed it. Do you know on a side note, do you know Jesus went to the bathroom? And we don't think that, we don't think it. We don't think Jesus, do you know Jesus ate all the time? Do you know a real fun study in the scriptures is to find out how much Jesus ate and when he ate? Do you know one of the proofs of the resurrection was that Jesus asked for fish? First thing he did, he's like, you kind of surprises them, walks through the wall, and they're all like, ah. And he goes, hey, you got a fish? Jesus liked fish. I imagine Jesus liked chicken wings. But he wanted fish, and then Jesus cooked them breakfast. Like Jesus cooked. Can we, just, can we just really try this for a minute here? Because you'll start to understand that the mundane, boring things of life, Jesus participated in. Because often we think that cooking is beneath us and it's not really participating in the call of God. Yet, yet Jesus raised up from the sickbed Peter's mother-in-law and then Peter's mother-in-law cooked for them. He raised her up to make her food. I'm like, that's my Jesus. I love it. I had that kind of mom. My mom was the kind of mom that you could ask her for food at any time of the day and she would make it. And one of my friends didn't believe me, so he tested her three in the morning. He's like, her name's Christine. 
Christine. She like comes out of, like, out of bed like, ah. Here you go, what do you need? What do you need? Because she loved my friend. His name was Connor. And he goes, I'm hungry. And he wasn't lying. He was hungry. And I was starving. <laughs> I was like, go get him. <laughs> and then she goes, what can I make you? And he's like, bacon and eggs. Three in the morning, let's lay it down, bacon and eggs. It happened. We're like, I was like, yes, yes, yes. Anyway, side note. But Jesus, like, listen to this. We think that the world, do you know Jesus walked everywhere? How many people don't have their driver's license? Do you know Jesus knows what it means? Do you know what people know? Listen to this. Do you know Jesus knows what it means to walk long distances and feel like he's getting nowhere? Do you know Jesus swung a hammer for 30 years of his life that Jesus was a construction worker? And it's not like Jesus just magically made projects work. Do you know, do you know swinging a hammer? It's not like he was perfect. Yes, he's perfect. But he was fully human. And therefore he went through human things. Therefore chances of him do you know that Christmas song, the, the, the um, uh, Away in a Manger? Do you know the Away in the Manger song? Where the, it says, no crying he makes. How many people have ever heard a baby never make a cry? No. See, I have, I have five children, and all of them, including my oldest daughter, Alicia, was screamers. She would scream and scream and scream and scream and scream. And so, no, she's not Jesus and not perfect, but... She cried because crying is a normal thing. Do you want to know something funny about the crying? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm like up to here with crying, so I'm really excited that my kids are getting older. In fact, we, like, anyway, so um, just because crying just starts aggravating you and it starts hurting my lower back. Because I've had five children now. I haven't had, physically had five, but I've been raising five. And I really love the fact that they cry a lot less than they used to. But do you know crying is actually a sign of a child that knows that they are loved? Do you know when a child is untouched, unloved, it'll stop crying. Stop crying. So, Jesus would have cried. And what I need you to see about this is Jesus is very familiar with everything that you are going through. And that's what he says in the scriptures. In Hebrews, it says that Jesus is a sympathetic, compassionate, high priest... Because he knows your weaknesses and he's familiar with them. And he's not looking at you when you come to him and go, Jesus, I have this need. He's not going, grow up. You're a pansy. Suck it up. Jesus is compassionate and loving. And he's very familiar with that. But I promise you this, you will never understand the fullness of the Christian life until you understand that Jesus came to redeem humanity. And that being human and going through normal human functions is a part of the glory and the mystery of God. We don't always stay in that place of walking around just healing everybody all the time everywhere we walk. There's moments when you're walking and there's nobody around and you're lonely. There's moments when you're walking and you're wondering, is this really where I was supposed to go? 
And you're looking for Jesus in those spaces and places. And one of the greatest needs that we have in this generation is to understand that Jesus came to redeem the mundane events, that his glory is seen in the mundane events, that how you serve and how you wash dishes or mop the floor actually is a part of advancing in some crazy way the kingdom of God because something is being formed in you and you are participating in the work of the kingdom by mimicking and acting like the servant that Jesus is and you are participating in the image of your father that means there needs to be excellence in work you need to get better at what you do and not just float in your talents this matters but Jesus is familiar with that he's familiar with your desires he knows it and he calls himself the bridge builder the one that came to you and so those robes okay then you then you hear the words that say that he had a golden kind of sash or golden girdle on his chest do you know that's the position that it is across his chest means that the work is finished because if it wasn't, it would be around his waist, ready for work. When it goes across your chest, it was a picture in that day of the work being finished. And it was golden because it's not just priestly robes, it's kingly robes. That he is the great high priest and he is the king of kings and lord of lords and it is this Jesus standing in the midst. Standing in the midst of his churches. And so, then we begin with what Jesus looks like right now. And you'll hear the word, as you heard it read, the word like. This isn't exactly the way it is. But like, is, John is grasping for images. Going, I see this picture. How can I even begin to describe it to the churches that I love of what Jesus looks like? But this would have been a shock for John because Jesus is revealing himself in a new way even to John, whom he loves. And John walked with Jesus. So first we see his head and hair. You all see that in the scriptures there? His head and his hair. So head and hair, white like snow, is that this is actually a picture of the image in Revelation in Daniel chapter 7, and basically I won't take too long explaining this, but it's the image of Jesus describing himself as the ancient of days. This is Jesus saying, I am the creator of the universe. I am God. He's the ancient of days, the one who always is and always was. He is incredibly wise, incredibly brilliant. He knows exactly what is going on, and he's never caught by surprise. And the word white, or the image of white, indicates purity, the sinlessness of Jesus Christ, and the purity from the covering of his head, is he is altogether pure and altogether wise. Secondly, eyes like a flame of fire. Can you imagine seeing somebody with eyes like the flame of fire? And I, I've got a lot of images I could give you, especially Marvel comics, but I don't want to distract you with images that have been pushed on you. I want you to imagine Jesus tonight. I don't want to bring an image and then you start thinking about Marvel comics like I just did. But anyways, eyes like flames of fire. Can you imagine that? What did that look like? What does fire mean? It means it's pure, 
Purifier, pure and purifying. Eyes that look at us. More importantly, eyes that look through us. Past all of our facades, past the masks that we wear, past the ways that we try to pretend that we are with other people, Jesus' eyes are looking right through you to the very soul of who you are and who you were created to be. This is the God that we serve. He sees all, it actually burns up the junk. The, his eyes and the purity of his eyes burn up the junk. How many people have ever had a gold filling before in their teeth? I know that not everybody does that. I don't have gold fillings. I have other kind of fillings. Gold. Do you know what the dentists do with gold fillings? This is actually the process of refining gold. Is they take the bit of gold that they're going to put in your tooth and they put the flame on it in the hottest part of the flame. And as the flame is on this piece of gold, there's something that is called dross and it's a greeny color. It's an incredible thing to watch but it's like this greeny kind of color and it's all the stuff that you don't want, especially put in your teeth, but it's the impurities that are in the gold. And as gold is being refined, the image is that the, the actual gold begins to roll away from the flame. It begins to move, okay? It begins to move. I used to work for a guy that was a dentist, so this is something that I know to be true, but it moves this way, okay? And then it moves away from the flame. That's what you need to understand. And then there's a moment when it almost, it doesn't make a noise, but it looks like it does. All of a sudden, the gold goes, and the gold turns this gorgeous, clear color. Pure gold with no dross. And then the gold begins to roll back into the flame. And Jesus' eyes of fire are the eyes that are gonna look through you and move towards you in his pure and purifying life, burning away the very things that actually are drossy in your life. And therefore, one of the greatest things we can do as Christians is put him before our face through his word, through the worship of song, singing, Jesus, I love you, Jesus, I love you, participating that in, with our words. We're actually seeing his face in that way, and he is going deeper and deeper and deeper and burning up those dross places. And very often, you'll actually find that in a worship time. You'll find it in a worship time as you're singing, Jesus, we love you. You'll probably start thinking, I wonder what's going to happen at Mug Up. I remember being in these places as a youth standing here worshiping and just loving Jesus. And then my mind would go, yeah, I wonder if that girl really will like me. I'm going to talk to her tonight. And I go back to, Jesus, I love you. And we go into that kind of, and then I go back and I go, man, I, I really hope it's cookies again. And then I go back and go, I'm going to kill at this game tonight. I'm just going to dominate. And then what would always happen to me is because Ivan and I went to the same camps, usually in the middle of worship, I would start trying to plan how I was going to take the guy out. Because he's always been that big and he's always been that strong and he used to knock me over like crazy. So I'd be like, Jesus, let's take him out tonight. I think we're playing four-way soccer. I'm just going to slide in and just take him right out. But do you know that would happen to me in worship at times? But do you know what that was? Dross. And the longer I sang, 
And very often Brandon would be leading worship and the longer he encouraged me to sing and I would just go louder and louder and louder and louder and I would just be like, Jesus, I love you and I'd try to get back, try to get back, try to get back and then all of a sudden I'd get into a place where I'm like, I'm out. I don't know where I, like this is, this is different. And now I'm not thinking those thoughts. That girl all of a sudden doesn't matter. That Ivan doesn't matter anymore. All this stuff doesn't matter. All my insecurities don't matter. And I'm just in this place of, Jesus, I love you. But that's where his eyes, like a flame of fire, are burning away the very things in my life that pull me away from him. Do you know one of the craziest things happen when you sit down to pray? You think about everything that you've got to do. You are never more productive than when you're about to pray or you're about to worship or you're about to listen to a sermon. You are never more productive than when you're going to do something so holy that's going to affect your life. Your brain starts going, hey, I got to do this, I got to do this. Oh, this is a great thought. I'm going to do this now. One of, one of the biggest secrets that you can do that people, women, men and women of God have done all through church history is they get a journal right beside them. And what they do is they allow the dross to be burned up in the sense that not that those things aren't important, first things first. And so as you spend time with Jesus in prayer, and if you're going to wake up tomorrow and go to prayer in the chapel early morning, you will find this to be true. Test me in it. You'll start thinking about everything else other than Jesus, and you'll think, maybe Jesus doesn't want to talk to me, or maybe I'm just not in the mood. But what you do is you begin to write down those things that you need to take care of later, those things that you're thinking about that are creative, and as you write them down and just say in your brain, I'll deal with that later, and go back to Jesus, you will move into a place like you've never imagined before. Because you'll always be distracted, and we need to see his eyes like a flame of fire. And most of us, especially in this generation, we don't stay long enough. We don't look long enough. We pull away too quick, and it's those distracting thoughts that pull you away. Not out of his love, but out of encounter. Out of encounter. Those who long and those who wait, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. There's a waiting. So feet. Move to Jesus' feet like burnished bronze that grow in a furnace. And actually, this picture again, to anybody familiar with the Bible, talking about feet that are burnished bronze, you'd instantly think of King Nebuchadnezzar and his dream. At least I would. And they would too. And if you remember the story of King Nebuchadnezzar and his dream, he had this dream of this giant statue of a king that had a golden head and a silver chest and then a torso and kind of thighs here of bronze and then iron legs and then feet of iron and clay. And the feet of that statue that represented the kingdoms of the earth were not able to, the glory of those kingdoms were not able to stand and last because they had a faulty foundation. And what we see here is that Jesus is the greatest foundation upon which we can stand, that he is absolutely strong because burnished bronze was made of copper and iron. And iron is incredibly strong and enduring, but it rusts. 
mixed with copper. This is the strongest material of the day because copper was pliable and it was able to cause things to endure. And this was the hardest, most enduring foundation metal that they knew at that time. And Jesus reveals to them in their day and age saying, I, have, I am a firm foundation. I am the one in whom all kingdoms stand and rest and I am never going away. And as I, burn, as I walk, I burn up evil around because burnished bronze as in a flame of fire. That he is absolutely authoritative and absolutely strong and absolutely enduring. This is our God. Then it's the voice. Like many waters. Do you, you can almost see John trying to figure this out. How is he going to describe this Jesus to you? That's amazing. The Jesus that is nothing like the Jesus on the screen that I showed you. I'm walking around going, a voice like many waters. And if you've ever been near a waterfall, you know that the sound of many waters, even the river, going down the river, you begin to not hear the sounds of other people's voices. And what John is saying is that his voice, when he speaks, drowns out all the lies, all the stuff, and it goes right to you and it overwhelms you in a way that you cannot get away. That there's an understanding of his voice. And you know one of the craziest things I can remember going on a prayer retreat and going to this place that was a high river season, I remember standing in the middle of the water, right close to the middle, and hearing the roar of the water. And this image was in my head. And I began to hear, all of a sudden, after the roar, I began to hear it almost like everything was just getting pushed out. All this stuff, all the thoughts, everything that I was struggling with at the time. And then I was filled with incredible peace and quiet. If you stand under noise long enough, you move into a place of peace and quiet in that rushing river sound. And that's the voice of Jesus. And so in his right hand, right hand means symbol of power, authority, strength, control, okay? But in his right hand, he holds the seven stars. And in that day and age, they thought that the stars and the planets were controlled by the gods and actually controlled your destiny. And Jesus goes, they're in my hand. So you know that song, he holds the whole world in his hands? That's it. He holds the destinies of all those in his hands. That there was actually a goddess at the time, her name was Hecate, and she actually said of herself, I am the beginning and the end. That's what the, the people would write about her the false religion of that day. They would say, I'm the beginning and the end, the one who holds the seven stars. And Jesus says to a people that knew that, and that's going to matter for the rest of the week, he speaks right to their historical situation. So we go, why seven stars, Jesus? Why didn't you say I hold, I hold the whole universe, including Pluto? <laughs> or that Death Star in my hands? Because they didn't know it looked like that at that time. And so he speaks right to their situation and goes, no, I hold, I control your destiny. I hold the world in my hands. And the last one, oh no, two more. The, the mouth, the sword of his mouth, okay? 
Hebrews 4.12 says this, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This is a word that cuts through. Is a word that cuts through, and the word there is a short sword, hand-to-hand combat. This is the God who comes close. The God who runs towards you in passion and in joy. The God that showed himself in the prodigal, the story of the prodigals, the one that goes close to his sons. And he does battle with all the lies that are coming at us. And he does battle for our souls. And he comes close and he cuts through all the stuff. But what a crazy image to imagine. It's not like when you see Jesus face to face, you're going to see this sword coming out of his mouth. But his words and his tongue is so cutting in that way that the only image that you could understand at that time, we might say laser now, just perfectly cuts through to precision. Because we know what a laser is. They didn't. So John goes, sword, short sword, cuts through. The word of God is like a sword. Do you see what he's doing? I'm going to pull all this together in a second here. In fact, David, you could just prepare yourself to come on up. His face shining like the sun. And this is my favorite. One of the Hebrew blessings and a blessing that I pray on my kids and pray on everybody that I like, usually meet at some point goes like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. This is found for if you want to know in Numbers 6, chapter 24 to 27. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. I will bless them. This idea of face shining speaks of favor. You see how the story of the prodigal affects our understanding even now when we're listening to this Jesus? Not the God that is angry at you, the God that is shining in full strength, in favor, and in brilliance. (laughs) Shining in his strength means you can't look at it fully because his favor is just beaming. So let me tell you something really interesting about even the way this is set up, okay? The way this is set up is actually in the form of what you would call a chiasm. And this is what a chiasm means, is that the numbers are meant to draw you to the focal point of the number four. So the fourth image is given is is what's meant in your mind to go towards the fourth image, and that's the most important image that you're supposed to pay attention to when you hear it. And if we were hearing it the way it was originally recorded and we understood that language in that day, we would go to that point. But watch how this happens. Number one and seven is Jesus' white head and shining face. Okay? That's the first and last impression. The first and last impression. And this is what it indicates. It indicates forgiveness, favor, and blessing. 
So the first thing that you are supposed to see in this as it draws you closer to the main point is that you begin from a place of Jesus showing himself as one with favor, forgiveness, and blessing. That is what he's declaring over you and he's saying it's all over my face. The first and the last impressions. Favor and blessing. Number two and number six, the eyes and the mouth, the organs of relationship. This is showing, this is the eyes and the mouth showing how intimate, how close, how, how he wants to communicate with us. How he moves towards us in intimacy. The eyes and the mouth, as soon as you start liking a girl, if you're a boy or if you're a girl, you start liking a boy, you all of a sudden notice eyes and mouths very quickly. Because that is a, or, that's the relationship aspect. So you're paying attention to eyes. Paying attention to mouth. And Jesus is saying in that way, he's saying, no, here, look at my eyes. Look at me. I'm coming towards you. And I believe that he's coming towards us tonight in that way. He's going to speak to us. And then three and five, the hands and the feet. Part of it expresses capability. Feet express movement and mobility. And right hand is an instrument of strength. And that's describing that Jesus is capable and active on our behalf. And it leaves us with this. The fourth image is the voice. The fourth image is the voice. And it's at the center. And Jesus' voice through all of Revelation, and especially to the seven churches which we're going to see in the coming days, is one of passionate love and one calling us into urgent mercy, urgent grace. Come in, come close. Come in and come close. And as I close with this, I want you to see, I want you to see the the image that maybe you've had of Jesus that isn't a good image image of a God who isn't very capable, a God who isn't very enduring, a God who acts like a lot of your parents and just leaves or ignores you. And I want to explain to you that this Jesus is one who moves close, one who cuts close, cuts through, who wants to speak to you and overwhelm you with his love. And he does it in so many ways. And that's the offer on the table. He's saying, I'm right here in the midst. And what he's calling you to and what I believe is going to call us to in this camp is by first seeing that he's the father that runs towards us. He's the God that comes close. He's the bridge builder that moved towards us so that we could be with him. Is he is the God who is calling you to an uncompromising love. He's the God that's calling you to an uncompromising love, a reality of his presence in such a way that's going to shape everything that you do. It's not Jesus and the things that you want. It's Jesus. And he's calling you into that relationship, that intimacy, that life. And so what I want to do is I want to read the image of Jesus over you one more time. Just the short part. 
Maybe you could stand with me tonight as we change our, our pace. See, we're, we're afraid and we're frustrated because we're not seeing Jesus. Don't, don't be talking to each other. Just stand there in a place. We're not seeing Jesus so we're, because we're not looking. We're not looking at this God. We're not looking long enough. And so I want to train you to begin to hear this through the scriptures of how to see Jesus. I want you to see Jesus in all of his passion and all his movement towards you. And so if you can think about right now what you felt Jesus was saying to you at the beginning when it was first read and maybe some of the questions that you might have had and hopefully some of them were answered and if they weren't, I'd love to talk to you after about it. Because there's so much I could say about this. Obviously, we could just go all night. But in all your circumstances and your situations and the stuff that are, your hands are full of, your minds are full of right now, I'm not asking you to empty your minds. I'm asking you to fill it with Jesus. Meditation and biblical understanding is not the emptying of one's minds the clearing of one's thoughts. It's the flooding reality of Jesus Christ overwhelming all your other thoughts. The Jesus who crushes all concerns. And I'll tell you the offer that's on the table tonight is if you let yourself imaginatively see Jesus tonight, understanding what these images are meant to evoke in your heart, See which image. Maybe it's just one. Maybe it's two images that he's calling you towards and then respond to them tonight. Maybe it's the voice and you know that you haven't been listening to him. You haven't been listening to him in the scriptures. You haven't been paying attention to the sound of his voice. In fact, you've been ignoring that prompting in your heart that says, oh, don't do that, don't do that. And you've been like, I'll just do it anyways because I want to. And he's going, no, I'm going to flood that. Maybe you're struggling with things in your mind and you're thinking all these thoughts about how sinful and dumb and crazy you are. The promise on the table to you tonight is he's going to overwhelm that. Look at him. Hear his voice. And let him flood, wash away those thoughts. Because he's moving towards you. Maybe he's calling you to get close with him tonight. Intimate. Maybe he's... Maybe he's looking at those areas that you've been thinking you were hiding. But his eyes like flames of fire are looking at those very areas. And he's going, I want to purify that. I want to cleanse that. So I'm going to read it. And I want you to imagine. I want you to listen. So if you can, close your eyes. If that's how you imagine, if you need to open your eyes to imagine, go for it. But I'm just going to pray that he speaks to you. Isn't it neat that the beginning of the book of Revelation said that you're blessed? You're actually like, the word blessed means in sync. You're like receiving the life of God just by reading the words of Revelation out loud. It's just so cool. So here we go. I, John, your partner, your brother in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus 
was on the Isle of Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and to Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me. He laid the hand that was holding the seven stars on John, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. For the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And the Lord of the universe and the lover of our soul is standing in the midst of his churches. He's standing in the midst of us right now and he is calling us to see him differently. And he's calling John and he's calling us and he's saying, stop being afraid of the things that are going on. Stop being in a place of despondency and frustration and loneliness and understand who I am, understand what I'm revealing and how close I am to you and what I'm longing to draw you into. And so Jesus, we ask that you would Alive in our imaginations. Give us hope. And let us begin to look at you tonight with new eyes. And let us begin to see you by listening. Oh, speak to us, Father. Speak to us by your grace, by your spirit. May we never be the same. May we encounter you in this week and in this moment.